Welcome in to Other People's Shoes. As you know, I am your host, Neil Matthews. Super excited that you have decided to take the journey of today's episode with me. I am really excited. It is July. It's hard to believe we're already saying July, but uh, but here we are. We're in July. So with that, that means only inevitably September is on the horizon. I know kids are already saying you're saying the S word. I need the little beep, like beep. Here's where I need your help as a listener. Help me out here. I am looking for the next guests. That's right, plural, guests. I'm looking for the next guest. So maybe that's you. If you're listening right now or you know someone, maybe it's somebody that you play, I don't know, the game hand and foot, that card game with. Maybe you're playing cards with them all the time. Or maybe it's somebody you like to play basketball with. Or maybe it's that running buddy. Or maybe it's that workout guy at the gym that you just think, man, that guy has a story, I'm sure. I want to know them. I want to meet them. I want to be in introduced to them. So if you could help me out with that, I would just be forever grateful. So how you can do that? Two easy ways. One, you can jump over to our website, OPSpodcast.com. Jump there right after the show and you can send me some information on somebody that you might know. Second way you can do it, if you don't want to write things down, you can also leave a voicemail straight from the website as well. Super easy, two ways to do that. And of course, you can also reach out to us on social media at OPS Podcast Show under Instagram, Facebook, and the Twitter. So without further ado, Lucas, you know what to do. Hey, come take a walk with me. Not like you used to do something differently. Put yourself in other people's shoes. Open up your mind and open up your eyes and change your direction. Change your perspective. Welcome in to Other People's Shoes. I'm your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you brought your mittens. Well, at least maybe you can think about mittens just for a moment. I know it's weird. It's like summertime, 4th of July. It's like barbecues and I'm talking about mittens. Seems kind of out of place, perhaps, but perhaps not. Help me welcome in my guest from the great mitten. He, of course, is hailing from Michigan. Hail to the victors, maybe. We could even get a little jump up to Ann Arbor. He, of course, comes to us, which I always like to say, from my very good friend, Caleb LaPlante. Caleb turned me on to this gentleman, and I'm so excited to sit with him today because already, I hope you're going to get excited too, because if you're in struggling with some marketing, he is here to help you. In fact, he is a marketing consultant. He has a company that he wants to help you get your voice out and help you market it out. That, of course, being... King Family Consulting. He is a husband of two wonderful kids. We're going to probably hear some kids stories too. So great for that as well. And of course, he's been married 13 years. So that's pretty exciting as well. And he has kind of a cool story how he met his wife. So maybe we'll get into that as well. Who knows Well, if we have time. But here's the big question for you. When your phone rings nowadays and you look down at it, do you answer the call or do you just hit decline I'll get to that later because my next guest, as I said, is going to really help us answer that call in our life. What that call is, well, you'll just have to stay tuned for that. Help me welcome him in again from the great state of Michigan. Mike, Mike, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Neil, for having me. Real pleasure. Was that was that good enough? I mean, did did we roll uh, out the carpet yeah, enough man, for that, you? That was awesome. Aside from no pyrotechnics, that was pretty good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that we we did our best to uh, to roll it out for you. I think we even got out the Dyson vacuum. We did vacuum it ahead of time before your arrival today. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to get into your story. But before we go too far down a road and hearing about your story and and how it's so impactful and and why people need to tune in and really hear what they what you have to say today and really answer that call as we're talking about we got to answer this question of course and, and that's this uh mike what size shoes do you wear what size shoes 14 you're 14 I am. well that'll be easy because i wear like a 10 and a half to uh to an 11 depending on you know what i'm wearing and then of course here's my favorite question of all to ask that's the follow-up to the shoe size because if we're going to be in your shoes today right yeah we got to know what size we're in but we also got to know what style and brand that we're in so help us with that too yeah, I'm wearing some Nikes and then it depends if I'm, you know, most of my shoes are Jordans, but I got some casual shoes there as well. It's pretty interesting. My my feet actually grew from like size 10 to size 14 in like a year and a half when I was in, I want to say sixth or seventh grade. So as you can imagine, that caused me a whole lot of trouble. 
not only you some trouble, but maybe the the parental units, right? If they're yeah. helping uh, put the shoes on your feet, as far as fitting the bill for that price tag there. So, so do you? Speaking of Jordans, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm a Carolina guy. We were kind of teasing a little bit ahead of time, being from Michigan, and I was teasing you about the whole Chris Weber, you know, not having a timeout thing. I always love to tease Michigan fans about that. I just will for the rest of my life, yeah. but. But do you have a favorite pair of Jordans that that are your maybe more favorite than another? Yeah, I got a pair of uh, dead stock 11s that I only wore once, and that was in my wedding. So you wore Jordans at your wedding? Sure did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're already my hero. I wish I could have gotten away with that. I wore some Tracy McGrady's that were all white at my reception. But okay. I, back, back in those days, I, I didn't have the coin for Jordans. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I was young married and, and didn't have the money for the Jordans yet. Now, on the other hand, if you look behind me, yeah, uh, I, I have, I have a few Jordans behind me now. So, so it, the, uh, the checkbook and the, uh, the money has finally come in for those, <laughs> I think in nice. some respects, but I want to get into your story here because, because again, being a marketing guy, you probably know this story. And, and for those that don't let me help them. So back in 85, when Michael Jordan came into the league, you know, he, he's, He's just coming out of the University of North Carolina. There's some fanfare with him. And of course, he signed with Nike. And so he's ready to release his signature Jordan shoe back in 85. And so unfortunately, he was not able to wear them in an actual regular season game when he first came in because the color scheme did not match Chicago Bulls color scheme. So he was unable to wear them because the NBA is like, no, your shoes have to match the uniforms color scheme. Right. So he could wear them in exhibition games and things like that in the all-star game, but he couldn't actually wear them in a, in a, in a game that counted Nike in their brilliance of marketing, which by the way, I, I applaud them for this. And, and I think you would even echo this. They come out with a commercial where Jordan's bouncing a ball and they started his head, work all the way down to his feet. And there's a black box around his shoes and says, or the NBA may ban these, but we never will ban you from wearing them. To me, that's such a great marketing idea. The idea that these shoes were banned. And I think at the time they were $69.95. So like 70 mm. bucks, reasonable opposed to nowadays where they're, you know, 500 and on up. Yeah. But what I'm wondering about, has there ever been a moment in your life that you were wearing some shoes that maybe you felt banned in? If you're following me on that. Uh, I think so. Um, that's a great question. I think that, to be honest with you, I think a lot of my whole life I've struggled with kind of uh, almost like imposter syndrome, you know, like uh, I'm sure as we get into it in my my life story and some of the crazy stuff I went through growing up, like I try to always be vulnerable and tell people uh, the truth. Um, but sometimes in doing so, I mean, it, it you know, the the thoughts that come to your mind is like, right. Who are you to say this, right? You don't have it all together. Who are you to tell other people, um, these things. And the only way that I know how to like combat that or deal with that in the moment is like, there's only two ways to learn. You can either go through something yourself or you could have watched or heard of what someone else went through and learned from them. So you don't have to go through it yourself. That's such a great jumping off point. Maybe for me, when I think of imposter syndrome, I think of somebody trying to be somebody they're not right. It's this idea that we've built this life around us, or, or maybe I've built this life. I'll make it personal. I've built this life around me. I've, I've built this image and this idea and this whatever, but in all reality, it's just, a sham. It's just a facade. It's just fake. Why do you feel like that has been maybe your biggest struggle, that imposter syndrome struggle? I don't know. I think it's some, it just comes down to like the core. I think our, that of who we are as humans, it's like, am I worthy? Right. Am I worthy of this? Like, am I worthy to have, I went through some crazy stuff when growing up and to be here today and to sit where I'm at and to um, have the things I guess that I have the family and the ability to do things that I want to do. And I don't feel guilty, but like, I can definitely look back and realize like, wow, like I'm, I'm fortunate. It couldn't have ended up this way. It could have ended up so much more. So, 
uh, much more worse. So I think it's not like of the fact that like I'm trying to be somebody that I'm not. It's like trying to accept the fact that like, you know, am I worthy of, of, of where I'm where I'm at and really just uh, just just having that self-confidence and owning it. I mean, let's face it. All of us have had some type of rough growing up, right? I mean, some more than others. But why do you think you're growing up maybe? And, and again, it's not this like measuring contest like your life's worse than my life or, or anything like that or I'm somehow going to one up you like oh you were this well I was that you know whatever because I think we sometimes especially as guys specifically I know we're we fall into that you know yeah. we're, we're guilty of that probably more so than I don't know than maybe women are maybe not where do you think if we were going to go back in time in some some respects like back in the day on the playground if we could go back that far where do you think it was for you that that was so hard and so and so challenging for you that that again you can look back and go man I was there but now I'm here can you maybe walk us through that yeah I can uh bear with me because it's gonna be I gotta paint to give you context but um yeah that's cool get out the paintbrushes let's go let's paint it awesome so I grew up uh to a single mom right I was the oldest of three kids uh we were extremely poor my mom often worked two to three jobs to make ends meet which meant that I was often at home watching my brother and sister cooking us dinner making us lunch uh, doing what we can. Um, my dad, uh, was in and out of prison three different times before I was 10. So, you know, uh, if you've seen movies, right. Where the guy's talking on the phone through the glass, you know, to his family like that, that's what I remember. Um, there was other occasions where my mom would take us to one prison and we were outside in the yard and we were like, swinging on a swing and my mom was sitting there talking to him at, at the, the table. Um, my dad got out of prison when I was 10 and he disappeared. Didn't know where he was at. Didn't know what he was doing. Um, so growing up, I felt abandoned. I felt rejected. I couldn't understand why my dad didn't want to be in my life. Now things have changed from, you know, I'm 40. So things have obviously changed in culture, but when I was growing up, like, and in the town I lived in, there wasn't much divorce. It wasn't, usual to go to like I played sports right so I was typically one maybe two of the only kids that didn't have a parent there or didn't have their father there if my mom was there so I was very observant of men and what they did and what they said so I was looking around I'm like well all these people have their dads like what is it about me and why don't I have my dad right so that kind of planted the seed inside of me of of unworthiness just uh just rejection and it you know it led me down some some paths to to look to to meet those things in in other ways but the real i guess uh hammers blow if if you could if you could say is when i was 15 i came home and my dad was there right and i was like it was like christmas right i'm like i couldn't believe it like my whole life all i ever wanted was my dad there right? That's the one thing I wanted more than anything else. And I uh, didn't ask any questions about where he'd been, didn't care. He was there. All I knew is, um, or all I hoped for is that he'd stick around and things would be good. And he was actually there for a couple of weeks. So those were some good, some good weeks. Um, but it all came to a blow when one morning I got woke up to a bunch of screaming and my bedroom was down in the basement. Everyone else's was upstairs. So I run upstairs and when you ran up the stairs to the right was my parents' room and to the left was the kitchen. Well, they're standing there in the kitchen and they're arguing and screaming at each other. And it's not like just a, like a casual fight. I mean, they're like full on my dad's in my mom's face, my mom's in my dad's face. And I'm just like, what is going on here? Like you're ruining my dream. Like that's all I could think of is like, this isn't supposed to happen. Like what's going on. And, uh, to back it up, to give you a little context to that, the night before I was out in the driveway shooting baskets, which was my nightly routine. And my dad came out there to smoke a cigarette and it was probably like 10 30 at night. And he just had this sad look on his face. And I'm like, what's going on, dad. And he's like, Oh, your mom should have been home by now. Like, I'm just worried. Something doesn't seem right. And I'm like, Oh, you're probably just worrying for nothing. You know, mom works late some nights. So like everything will be fine. So we wrap it up, go inside, I go to bed. Well, so here we are back in the kitchen and I'm like, what's going on? And my dad's like, I told you something was wrong. I told you something was wrong. He's like, your mom's been seeing this other guy at work. She doesn't love me. She can't, she doesn't want to be with me. She's breaking up this family. He's putting all the blame on her. 
you know, I'm 15 years old at the time. I don't have full context. I didn't realize that my mom, right. Who's a woman, you know, she's been alone for so long, finally met somebody at work before my dad even came on the scene. And then all of a sudden my dad shows up and he's like, Hey, here I am. Take me back. And so my mom is probably confused about what the right thing to do is, you know? So she told my dad, you know, Hey, this is what's going on and I can't be with you. And he couldn't handle it. So there we are. But me not realizing that at that age, I immediately turned to my mom and I'm like, you just ruined my life, right? It's all your fault. Like, that's all I could see. And I was like, I'm out of here. And I left and I went to, I checked on my brother and sister and then I went to school because I had, I think, exams that day. Well, now I'm sitting in sixth hour and the principal knocks on the door and he's like, hey, someone needs to talk to you or send my king out. Someone needs to talk to him. So go out there with the principal, go around the corner there my mom and dad are. So with all the 15 year old attitude that you can imagine I have, I'm like, what do you guys want? And my dad's like, me and your mom talked, she's going to stop seeing this guy. Uh, we're finally going to be a family after all these years. And I'm like, yeah, right. I'm like, is that true? Looking at my mom. And she's like, yeah, Michael, that's true. I'm going to make this work for you kids. And so I'm like, wow, that's all I needed to hear. They said goodbye, went back in class. I'm back on cloud nine, slapping fives with my friends saying, yeah, my dad's not going anywhere, you know, all that. Well, fast forward an hour or two on my way home. Uh, our house was like set back off the street, like maybe, I don't know, 50 feet or so. So uh, I get dropped off. I'm walking towards the front door and sure enough, I can hear screaming and hollering again. Look through the window of the front door and I see my dad standing there in the kitchen and he, but this time he's got something in his hand and it's down behind his back. And as I come through the door, I'm like, really, what's going on here? And he's like, your mom's a liar. She, she changed her mind. She's, she's not going to leave this guy. She, she says she can't trust me and she doesn't love me anymore. And she did this and he whips up his hand and in his hand. And I didn't know this, but he had given my mom like a promise ring kind of as like a, I'm going to be there now type of thing. Well, my mom, I mean, a woman's like wrath, she took a hammer to that thing and smashed the crap out of that thing. And my dad was pissed. And so I just looked at my mom and I'm like, really, really? And I just kind of nudged her out of the way and went downstairs and laid in my bed and cried myself to sleep. Well, next thing I know, I hear this loud smashing noise, not even sure what it is, wakes me from a dead sleep run back up the stairs, through the kitchen, through the living room, and I'm staring out our big front window towards the street. And in the yard is my dad, and he's got his shirt off. He's high as a kite. He's screaming obscenities at my mom. And I'm just like, Dad, what are you doing? And I look down, and this dude took like a 20-pound rock and picked it up and threw it through the front window of our door. So here comes my mom running into the living room, and she's like, John Henry King, I just called the police. You're going back to prison. If you know what's good for you, you'll get out of here now. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience before of seeing somebody who's under the influence of something immediately, like in the blink of an eye, become 100% sober. But that's exactly what happened to him. And he ran to his truck, got in, drove down the road, and became a ghost. Well, first off, that... <laughs> That's so intense, especially, you know, as a, as a 15, you know, almost 16, probably year old kid. Right. I mean, you kind of became the dad. I mean, if I just know anything about birth order and dynamics, I would imagine you became the dad to the two younger siblings. Yeah. Am I wrong or right? No, you're that? right. Okay. And, and so in that respect, you felt like you had to be mom's protector, no matter what, at the end of the day, you're kind of team mom, no matter what right also true? uh depends like during that situation no i hated my mom well yeah during that situation no because you want a dad there because you're like i'm tired of being the dad like i don't want to be the dad anymore you be the yeah. dad i don't want to be the dad i, I want to be a kid i want to go shoot hoops i want to be like mike you know in more ways mm -hmm. than one right yeah i'm talking michael jordan but but you're also mike so i uh, just trying to give some levity there but overall you were you were wanting to have what everyone else had. Yeah. And I and I think I now hear in your voice and, and even in your retelling of it, why being an imposter or having imposter syndrome for you was a struggle and really a battle for you 
because you thought, and again, maybe I'm projecting, you can, of course can jump in here, but you probably felt like, well, look at all these kids that, that had their dads there and their moms there. And, and that's all I ever want. I, I want that. Why can't I have that? Why, why do I have to miss out on that? What have I done to deserve to miss out on this? Like I, I'm a pretty good kid. I probably get pretty good grades. I'm taking care of everybody. I'm doing it all. And there's a little bit of frustration in your heart to say, what else do I need to do to make this right? And then when he does come back and then he shoves, you know, your, your mom shoves him away, then you're not team mom anymore. You're like your team dad. Cause all you want is him there. Yeah. And I had one other experience with my dad before that. And I was in the eighth grade and I played basketball and I was horrible in the eighth grade. I mean, I was so bad. We had an A and B team and the coach made me play one kid for the last spot. I shouldn't say I was that bad, but I wasn't that good either. But he made us play one-on-one -on -one, sudden death to one point for the last spot on the A team. I got lucky enough to start with the ball. So I drove to my right, did like some Michael Jordan spin move and just threw the ball over my back. It hits the top of the backboard and bounces in. That kid falls to his knees and starts crying because he was a way better player than me. And I'm jumping up in the air, screaming and shouting. So now I'm on the A team, but I'm not playing at all. I'm like scrub time, like the last couple minutes of the game. Well, here we are, we're away at this game and my mom comes in and who she come in with, she comes in with my dad. And I couldn't believe it, right? So I'm on the end of the bench, like, it's go time. Like, I need to show this dude what he's missing out on. And so sure enough, I get my, like, two to three minutes of scrub time. I was like a mix of Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, and whoever else you want to throw in there. I mean, I'm diving on the floor for balls that I can't even get, just trying to impress my dad, right? And what I remember from that is after the game, we were uh, we were leaving and I was crying um, because I was always super like, I mean, I'm a, I wear my heart on my sleeve, right? So I was crying and my dad came alongside of me and he put his arm around me and, you know, instead of saying, well done, son, I'm proud of you, like this and that, he looks down at me and he goes, why are you crying, dude? And I wasn't, I felt like I didn't have a voice, so I couldn't tell him what I was feeling. And what I was feeling at that moment was, you're my dad this is the only time you've ever seen me play basketball. I just wanted you to be proud of me. So I felt like I needed to do whatever I could to win that game, to make you feel like you're proud of me so that you wouldn't leave again. But I couldn't say that. I couldn't voice that. That's how I felt inside. And he definitely wasn't picking up on that. That's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I, I can totally feel your pain in this middle school for me. We're, we're, we're actually the same age. I, I might be a little older than you because I turned 41 back in March, but, but I'm walking home at the end of track practice in eighth grade. And prior to walking home, the high jump coach had come to me and said, listen, son, put his arm around me. You're never going to be mm -hmm. a high jumper. You're just not. And that crushed me. And the reason why it crushed me is my dad was very, very successful in the high jump in high school, super successful. And, you know, had some school records and things like that. And all I ever wanted to be was a high jumper because much like you from, from the sound of it, all you wanted to do was have your dad yeah. be proud of you. You wanted your dad to show up. You wanted your dad to be present and be there and, you know, be the, be the rock star dad that you saw all the other kids have. And, and probably not only were envious, but probably some jealousy set in. I'm, I'm imagining, mm -hmm. you know, cause I know I felt that way, but I remember walking home that very long walk home and just in tears thinking to myself, that was my shot. That was my one shot. All I had to do was clear that stupid bar and I could have made the high jump team. You know, I still made the track team. They they put me at long mm -hmm. distance and, you know, I figured out that I was a better distance runner than I was a, a high jumper. But I, I was still crushed because I thought this would have been my moment. He could have come to practice. He could have worked with me. He could have, you know, made me into the high jumper yeah. he was. And so I can relate with you on that for sure. Getting into your, your story maybe a little further or maybe a little zoomed out view of it, is that for you why you are passionate about helping men answer the call of being fathers? Is that what kind of maybe built the building blocks to where you are now? Yeah, that was the start of it. I mean, um, absolutely. I think it's only fair that I tell the the listeners kind of what happened after my dad drove oh, away. Oh, of course. We can't leave him hanging on that for sure. Yeah, we got <laughs> we got to tell him that why you're, you're helping men be, be called to be fathers and husbands, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when he left and drove off, that set into motion a uh, cycle of him showing up every two years for the next six years at major life events for me and then disappearing again. So I go to graduate high school. I get this call out of the blue. It's him. He's telling me how proud he is of me. He heard I'm going to college. I'm going to be the first person in my family to go to college. I'm going to be playing basketball, all this stuff, and he's going to be there. So true to his word, he showed up for that, gave me the same old, like, I'm going to be here now for you, your brother, and your sister. I realized what I missed out on, but he just couldn't couldn't walk that walk, so he disappeared again. And then two years later, I'm in college. My brother, who was the the youngest of us three, he, uh, he committed suicide. So I had to deal all, with all that. It's the day of the funeral. Uh, we're at the cemetery. I'm walking up the gravel road to go bury my brother. This car door opens and someone calls my name. So I stop and I kind of turn and look to see who this is. And it's my dad and he's in the backseat of this car. You know, once again, I haven't seen him in two years and go in there to talk to him a second because he asked me to come there. And he's obviously devastated super guilty about what my brother did and all this and um wants to talk longer but i'm like hey dad i gotta go bury anthony i'm like i can't talk like you know get a hold of me later and so same thing i'm gonna be here i'm gonna you know start sending you money to help you with college all this stuff so go leave he disappears again well now i'm graduating from college and i get another phone call it's always him calling from these random numbers that i never recognize right and i answer and I'm surprised, not surprised when it's him. And he's like, hey, son, super proud of you. You're going to be graduating from college, first in the family. Um, I'm going to be there. But when you see me, don't be scared. And then he, like, goes and says some other stuff. Well, my brain's, like, on a, I don't know, two or three-second delay as I'm processing what he's saying. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. What, what do you mean, don't be scared when I see you? And he goes, well, son, I don't know how to tell you this, but I don't look anything like you remember. So to give context to the listeners, I'm about 6'3", about 215. My dad was about 6'1", probably 215. So he's a very muscular guy, broad chest, shoulders. Um, and that's how I always remembered him. He was always very much younger than he was for his age. He was 20 years older than my mom. And he never looked it, right? Um, so very good genes. So you know, as he's explaining this, he says, you know, I don't look anything like you remember me. He's like, I've been diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. I don't know how much longer I have to live. So I don't even remember where that conversation went. I just remember graduation came and went. He wasn't there. I got a call like two days later. It's him. He says he's over at a friend's house. And if I'd come over there and see him, so make the trip over there. His friend brings me around the back of the house where he's sitting on this porch I come around the corner and sure enough, he don't look anything like I remember him. I mean, his eyes are sunk in the back of his head. His skin is like pulled tight around his cheekbones. He's probably like a hundred pounds soaking wet if I'm being generous. I mean, he's literally, his body is eating itself alive. So I sit down with him. We probably talk for about 10, maybe 15 minutes. Um, One good thing out of that is, you know, he tells me he loves me. I tell him I love him. Uh, and then he says, I got to, he says he has to go lay down cause he's tired from all the chemo and stuff. Um, but he wants to see me again, uh, in a, you know, tomorrow or a couple days or whatever. So I'm like, okay, just call me. I'll come over here. Right. Like part of me wanted to rip into my dad and be like, you were never there for me. You were not a good father, X, Y, Z, ABC. But part of me looked at him with compassion in my eyes for just the physical way or, you know, the physical state that he was in that I, that I couldn't, you know, I felt sorry for him. And so I said goodbye and left and um, got a call uh, probably, I want to say a week later that he died, um, which was pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy. He drove down to Alabama because that's where he was from. And that's where his family was. Um, And that was kind of a big breakthrough for me at the funeral, to be honest with you, to keep it short here. Um, At the funeral, I'm standing in front of his casket, looking down, saying my final piece or whatever. And I walk back, start to walk back to my chair. And as I'm walking back to my chair, this feeling just comes over me of 
just overwhelmed. Like I hadn't cried up until that point. I'd kept it together, but like the dam finally breaks and I'm sitting in my chair and I've got my hands in my head and I'm crying and I can't stop. And they say, when you die, your life is going to pass before your eyes. Well, I wasn't dead, but my life was passing before my eyes. And I was seeing all these events and my dad wasn't in any of them. And it was just making me angrier and angrier. And I'm like, this guy in this box doesn't know anything about me. He doesn't know what my favorite color is. He doesn't know what my favorite food is. He doesn't know anything. And I don't know where you are in your beliefs. I believe in a God. Um, and I believe that I heard God's voice that day because he whispered in my ear. He said, I know everything about you, son. And as soon as I heard those words, I mean, this peace and this calmness just overcame me. I stopped crying and I was good. I was good. And that was, that was it. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't need any more closure. I didn't need anything else. I, I could move on from there. Briefly glossed over my brother's suicide, but those things, right? My dad leaving at 15, my brother committing suicide, and then my father dying, like to have all of that in such a short time frame of, of six years, I mean, it, it, it played a toll on me. Well, first off, Mike, thank you so much for being honest and, and vulnerable and, you know, willing to share your story. I mean, that, that's pretty horrific, you know, walking through, you know, that and, and the pain of all that. If I can, I, I want to kind of go back yeah. over some of the stuff you talked Absolutely. about if you're, if you're okay with that. Okay. So, so one, yeah, I, I do want to kind of be very sensitive to that, but your brother's suicide, do you know what led him to go down that road ultimately? I mean, obviously you're not, maybe not with him on the daily, but I mean, do you think part of your struggle was also his struggle with your dad and, and maybe feeling inadequate? Yeah, I do. Um, and to kind of get some context to that, like he was always a good kid. He was like, he just had a way with people. He would have been an awesome salesman. I mean, people just loved him. He was so outgoing much more than I am. Uh, and he was goofy and, and funny and people, they just gravitated towards him. But his uh, senior year, and I didn't know this because I was away at college, right? So here I am and I just find all this stuff out afterwards. But uh, he was trying to, he was a football player. So he had broke his foot, um, which was devastating to him. So he wasn't going to be able to, to play or they thought he wasn't going to be able to play. And then they were able to, through rehab and stuff, I guess, get him back out on the field like six weeks later or something. But then he ended up re-breaking his foot again. And now they're like, you might not even walk. So I can imagine, you know, he was crushed from that. And then they had parents night. Well, I don't remember where my mom was in the picture, but obviously my dad wasn't there. So my grandparents were supposed to go out there with him for parents night. And for some reason they were late and they couldn't make it on time. So he had to walk out there by himself. And I guess he was the only kid. And uh, he later confided in my sister, I guess, that that was the worst day of his life. So that kind of like those things like started him down this path, you know, of, of depression, I guess. And my last interaction with him was when I came home for a weekend to visit and me and a friend uh, were being college idiots and we were downstairs and we were having some drinks on uh, the basement um, and even though we were of age, I was around my brother and he was watching us as we were watching TV. And uh, I think I had this, this uh, fifth of vodka that we had been drinking. And I told him when I left, I'm like, don't you, don't you touch this. I don't know why I said that to him. Cause he, I never knew him to be into any of that stuff. Maybe it was just kind of like the big brother in me, like, you know, this isn't for you, but I went and I hid that thing in my room. I'm pretty sure under my mattress, if I'm remembering correctly. But so we went out that night and then I came back and uh, we lived with my grandparents at the time. So I, in the basement, I walked down the hallway and my room was at the end of the hallway and his door was the first door on the left before my bedroom. So as I'm walking down the hallway, I look in his room and I see him sprawled out on his bed like this with his face down. And I'm like, I bet that dude drank that, that alcohol. And I went and looked in my room and sure enough, found the bottle and it was gone. And I went in there and I was pissed and I started jumped on top of him and I started shaking him like, wake up, what'd you do? And, you know, confronted him on that. And he admitted it long story short, that was probably the best 45 minutes that I ever had with my brother, because we talked through so much stuff about real life and growing up without a dad and just a real deep, intimate conversation. 
Um, and then after that, the next day I had to go back to college for practice and stuff. So I left and that was the last time I saw him. So what I learned later on was, you know, he was in, he was depressed and what was his tipping point was he was taking a, like Vicodin or, or, um, Oxycontin, uh, Oxycontin or, or Norco. Yeah. Or something, something like, that. like that. Yeah. Or Norco, one of those. Right. So he was taking that and he had a friend at school who was like, Hey man, I get one of those and my brother being who he is was like, all right, no problem. Well, I don't know if they have this now in schools, but back then they were like, if you knew anybody that was dealing drugs, you could go anonymously report them at the principal's office and you got like a $500 reward if it ended up being true. So this kid took that pill, went to the office, said my brother gave it to him, sold it to him, whatever. So they went and investigated it. Sure enough, found out my brother did give it to him. And they, no questions asked, because that was a policy, immediate expulsion. So I believe that was the linchpin in my brother's depression. And that's when he was like, there's no going back. I've just ruined my life. Like, how do you bounce back from that? And now he's looking at life through this tiny little keyhole. So that night, um, he decided to take one of my grandpa's shotguns out of uh, the closet and he got in his car and this is a crazy thing. He drove to the high school and he, so when they built this high school, it was between two main roads in our city. Um, and so people would cut across the parking lot all the time instead of having to go all the way around the block. So he wasn't in the actual parking lot to start off with. He was in like the thoroughway uh, between one street to go to the parking lot. And he sat there and his best friend at like 1230 at night, was driving home, saw his car sitting there and pulled up and pulled up next to him and saw him sitting there and tried to talk to him three separate times. He said, Hey, what's going on? And my brother was like, Oh, I'm fine. I just need to think by myself. And then he'd like drive a couple feet forward. And then his friend would pull up next to him and be like, Hey man, you sure? Like, I'll talk to you, whatever you want to talk about. But my brother just kept putting it off and off. And then in the morning, sometime in the morning, he drove into the parking lot and parked in the spot nearest to the high school and waited for everyone to go inside because they all say they saw him and they were like hey are you coming into class and he was like yeah and then about 10 minutes into first hour a girl forgot her book and she went back out to her car to get it and that's when she went out the doors and as she got to the parking lot she saw my brother slumped over his steering wheel because he had shot himself um, and she went back in and that set in the motion of them calling me at school and my mom and my sister and my grandparents and all that madness. It's so crazy because again, I, I mean, I can think back to high school, you know, even though it was 99, I graduated in 99, but I can think back to high school that it was events and moments and injuries. You know, I was an athlete too. I ran cross country and in track and wasn't as cool as a basketball player. I had no outside shot, by the way. I could scout for the basketball team, but I had no outside shot. But I always wanted to run out of that tunnel and, and, and hear the, the Michigan fight song. But ironically enough, that was our school's fight song was was Hail to Victor. So so there we go. It's just kind of funny. But for me, I can think back to ending of a relationship with a girlfriend, you know, or a friend, you know, not wanting to be my friend anymore. And, and that was so catastrophic at that moment, right? So life altering, I so I thought. And now yeah. here I sit at 41 years old and I, I look back and I go, man, that was that was not a monumental event. That was not catastrophic. But man, at that time, in that moment, it was it was terrible. And I, I would imagine if your brother was here, he could maybe share with us the, between the injury, you know, the senior night. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, That's a big deal in a, in a young person's life, a young athlete's life. It doesn't get any bigger than that. And and mm -hmm. for him not to have somebody there and then, you know, to, to be expelled from school and feeling like there's nobody around, nobody wants me. I could see, again, we don't know because we're not him and, and he's right. not here to really tell us. But I would imagine that he probably was walking a very dark and very scary road. And, you know, so with that, I'm wondering about this, you know, to going back to you, if we can, who was a guy that came alongside you? Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a mentor from church. I don't know. And I am a person of faith as well, just to be clear on that. But who is somebody that really poured into you as an individual that you can look back on and now and go, man, if it wasn't for who I wouldn't be here. Yeah. I believe that everybody has some, a person like this in their life, whether they want to recognize it or not, whether it's an uncle or 
you know, a neighbor. There's several people that have poured into me, but the first one that always comes to mind, uh, who is still a mentor to me to this day, and we're very close, is a gentleman by the name of Bob Vanderpool. I grew up playing sports with with his son, and he coached us in baseball and some other things from a young age. I think he's still got pictures of uh, us uh, from baseball from when I was like in sixth grade. But, you know, he recognized that, you know, I was from a rough home life, right? So he was always super intentional about including me in a ton of stuff. I mean, he took me on vacation with him and his family, you know, and I wasn't even really, I mean, I wasn't part of their family, but, you know, he, he always went out of his way to do things like that. He would buy me dinner. He would talk to me. I mean, he, he's just an awesome dude. I mean, he, he has a heart of gold and, um, you know, I, he, he just loved me, man. He showed me God's love. So speaking of, of him showing you God's love and first off, that's fantastic. Again, I I do believe we all need that mentor. We all need that person pouring into us. So then we can maybe pour into somebody else. I just think it's a domino effect of people pouring into everyone, you know, just this whole community of that. But, but speaking of that, you know, Maybe you know this song, maybe you don't. There, there is this song out. I think Chris Tomlin is the artist, but he sings this really annoying song. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. I absolutely yeah. hate that song. Nothing against Chris. He's a fantastic <laughs> musical artist. He can create some songs, but this is not one of the ones that is great. We sing it in church, and I literally, hands in my pockets, arms crossed, I refuse to <laughs> sing it. I know I'm. it's my own silent protest. I'm not kneeling during Good Good Father, but maybe I should start to draw some more attention to me. But but I'm serious. Like, do, do you know the song I'm talking about? First off, let's maybe clear the air on that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair uh, enough. Good. Yeah. You do mm-hmm. know that. All right. You said you're a person of faith and, and I've declared that as well. For me, the struggle I run into in my faith, and, and maybe you've never struggled with this. I'm sure you're just amazing at it. Maybe you, I don't know. But if God is so good and God is so, yeah, I mean, again, good, good father, it's who you are. Why did he allow you to walk through this painful stuff with your dad and the painful suicide with your brother? And we haven't even gotten into your sister, but we, we could leave her out of this. She's probably grateful if we do. But seriously, like if God is so good and God is so amazing, why does he allow that to happen to you? Yeah, that's a great question. One I've thought about a long for a long time and I know people who aren't of faith that's one of the first questions they ask why does God allow that to happen to me I don't think God wants that to happen but I think because he's given us free will right there's some things he's not going to intervene in but the thing is is that he is alongside of us and he will make ways for us to get through these things not only for our own benefit but more so for other people's benefit because there's something that only you are going to go through in your life at the time you're going to question and be like, why me? Why is this happening? But later on in your life, you're going to have the privilege of coming alongside someone else who's going through that and be able to walk them through that and be able to provide a shoulder for them to lean on. We wouldn't get through things as humans if we didn't have other people who had been through those things and can offer their wisdom to us. Well, first off, I love that. (laughs) I love that answer. I often say on the show, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. And I do, after I say that generally, I say it's easy to say in concept. It's really easy. Like I've worked really hard to memorize that. You know, it didn't take too long because something I created, but... But in concept, again, it's easy to say, but in practical application, man, it is really hard to do practically. Why, why do you think you are so passionate about men and, and helping them understand that they are important and that they do matter? And, and is it part of your childhood bringing up or was there another maybe catalyst for that? No, I think it was part of my childhood. That's definitely what planted the seed. But I think it's been a growing thing, right? Like I always like thought this in the back of my mind, but it really started to come to the forefront when I think it was like 2016 or 17, like when, when Robin Williams committed suicide and then it was like Anthony Bourdain committed suicide. I don't know why, but it was those two things that I'm like, this is just, this is crazy, right? Like all these people that supposedly have everything that you could ever want, all the fame, all the money, you know, they're wrestling with stuff that no one knows about, or maybe very few people know about, and they choose to choose to do that. And I don't, 
something just pricked my heart, man. And God was like, I'm like, I need to do something about this. And prior to that, God had kind of given me an idea and I had kind of, I'd been disobedient to it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like, I, I don't know, you know, that whole like imposter syndrome, I guess, started creeping in. And when I said that, he said to me, he's like, yeah, you remember that idea I gave you? He's like, maybe you should look into that. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I should. So then I started taking action towards that. But yeah, that was, you know, definitely the the seed was planted as a kid growing up. And then those two things like kind of pushed me, uh, pushed me forward and, and more into to looking into that. And that kind of began, started me on my own journey into manhood and why as men do we, why do we lie to ourselves and why do we lie to other people? And I don't mean like maliciously. I mean, like we can't recognize our own feelings. So when someone says, what do you think about that? Or how do you feel about that? You're like, Oh, I'm fine. It's good. No big deal. No, it's not fine. It is a big deal. Right. That like, you, 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 you know, that whole lying to yourself about that. So um, that's just one, one part of it, but um, just getting into to all of that. And to be able to do that, I had to do some serious soul searching. I had to go back and I had to deal with that stuff from my childhood, man. I mean, forgive my dad, right? I had to walk that out. That was super hard. Uh, you know, there was some stuff with my mom that I had to deal with. You know, there was some stuff that I had to deal with that I had done to other people that were just collateral damage from all the stuff that I was dealing with bringing to school every day. Uh, you know, but the thing is, is no matter how scary that stuff was, what I discovered is when I was willing to turn around and look that in the eye and walk that out, the freedom that I experienced on the other side of that was far greater than I ever could have imagined. And now I can't get enough of it and I can't get enough of seeing other men make that discovery for themselves. That's great. And why, why Robin Williams? I mean, of all people, I mean, there've been a number of, of people who celebrity male figures that have committed suicide. I mean, Heath Ledger jumps to my mind. Um, there, there've been, I can't think of any off offhand right now other than Heath Ledger. And I think only because I just watched a Batman from him. So he's like top of oh. mind, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I don't know. Rob Williams, by the way, August of, of 2014. So just to help you on that. So yeah. But why those guys? I wish I could give you an answer. I don't know why it just, when that, when I heard that, I don't know why, but I just, I just got this lump in my throat and I did everything I could not, not to cry, like to try to choke that down. It didn't work, but I don't, I don't know why that just, just hearing that, like, I don't, I mean, I've watched Robin Williams movies, but I'm not like, Oh, he's awesome. Or like, that's who I aspire to be like, or any of that. I mean, but for some reason, when I heard that news, yeah, it just broke my heart. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Maybe it just brought me back to, you know, how I felt when my brother committed suicide, you know, and like, why, why do people get to a point where they feel like that's the only way out where that's the, the only escape that they have? Cause I guarantee that if we could talk to any of those people, I guarantee it they would have wished they wouldn't have done that no matter how bad it had gotten. Cause there's so much that life has for us that when we, when you do those things that you miss out on, I don't know. It's just, you, you get stuck. You get tunnel vision is my only guess, you know, and like we talked before and they think that's the, the, the only way and they can't see any of the good stuff down the road, you know, whether that's marriage or having kids or getting to travel or all these experiences that life offers you, they're just fixated on, on getting out of that pain. So, but yeah, for whatever reason that just broke my heart. So, well, I know some have, have dismissed the shack, the, the book, the shack, but which is fine. I'm not saying it's theology or, you know, you should go put it in comparison with the Bible or anything like that, but there is a line in there that I really love and resonate with. And it, it's uh, it's God talking to the main character. I think his name's McKenzie. God's saying to McKenzie, he says, if all you see is your pain, you'll never see me. And for, for years now, since I've read The Shack and listened to it, that still resonates with me, even to this day. Like, if all I'm seeing is my pain, I'm never going to really truly see who God is as that 
painful as it is for me to say as the good, good father. So there it is, full circle. As we kind of start to wrap up, I want to ask you a, a couple of more questions. And, and one question that, that comes to my mind is what is the answer in your mind to help men? If you could somehow, and, and I know there's, you know, Harry Potter and magic and, you know, I'm a big Star Wars guy, right? There's the force and all this other stuff. But if we could somehow give you a magic wand or a giant eraser and say, Mike, you have the power to just make your hand, you know, wave over it and you could fix men in general, what would be one thing you would fix? Or maybe a couple of things to help maybe fix men be better men. Their childhood wounds. I think it'd solve everything. And why do you think that's so important, those childhood wounds? The, I'm going to say this is a generalization, but this is what I've seen in not only myself, but literally hundreds of men that I've done, had the privilege of doing work with. Those wounds that we experience as a child, they take root. And the the devil uses those against us as we grow. And there's shame that's piled on our backs. And there's guilt that's piled on our backs. And whether we, whether we know it, whether we don't know it, whether we've just suppressed it, it's still there. And until it gets dealt with, it's just going to continue to, to, to drag you down. And I, and as men for a multitude of reasons, we have not been taught how to effectively do that, how to, with uh, maturity and with responsibility, go back to those wounds, whatever they may be. And deal with them. Um, you know, like they don't like an example is like right with my dad, like right, dealing with my dad. Like part of that was me having to write a letter to my dad with all my feelings about how I felt, even though he was dead, right? Just getting that on paper and getting that out. And then I had some stuff with my mom, right? I couldn't take the same approach. Um, I, even though she was alive, like this like you have to steward it very carefully, right? Because it's it's a sensitive thing between you and if that person is still alive between them. So what I did with my mom or what God led me to do is the same thing, right? I wrote a letter, right? But then I gave it to some guys that I trusted. I'm like, Hey, is this, is this true? But is this honoring to who my mom was? And they all agreed that it was. And then I gave my, that letter to my mom. I didn't need for her to read it. I didn't need for her to respond. I just needed to get that out of me. And when we bring these things to the light, the, sh the shame can't exist anymore. The guilt can't exist anymore. And then we can fully step into who we were called to be, whether as a husband, a father, or a friend. And I'm, I, I mean, I, I've just seen it too many times now, too many times. So you mentioned as part of your introduction to, to help us introduce you, that rock star welcome. I want to call people's attention back to that as we, you know, rolled out the red carpet for you. Even though you were a Fab Five supporter, follower, we're still having a good conversation today, I feel yeah. like. You know, Steve Fisher's okay. He's Michigan's head coach at the time, by the way, of the Fab Five Carolina matchup back in 92-93. So that's what we're referring to, just an underlining little tension, if you will, <laughs> between the two of us today. Because I did cheer hard for North Carolina. It's the first time I cheered for them uh, in that game. And, of course, Chris Weber famously calls a timeout he didn't have. Poor coaching, maybe. I don't know. Dean Smith would have let his kids know that there was no timeout. <laughs> I don't want to get there or go there with you. But, but on a more serious note, I know Jalen Rose has come out and said he didn't have a great dad. And mm -hmm. part of the reason why he wore the number five, which I, I guess there's some reasons behind that. And the Fab Five documentary does a great job of that. But but Weber didn't have a great dad either. And I know a lot of NBA guys in general, LeBron uh, James famously has said he didn't have a great relationship with his dad. I think even to this mm -hmm. day he still doesn't. What do you think as a culture, if men finally did step up and really kind of step to the plate to be you know, the fathers that they're called to be, what do you think would happen to our world and our society, in your opinion? Yeah, in my opinion, you wouldn't see all the craziness you see today. You wouldn't see as much crime. You wouldn't see as much uh, of the other abuses, whether they're emotional, mental, physical, sexual. I mean, the truth is hurt people hurt people, especially if they never deal with that hurt, right? And I, I personally think you know, and there's no way to prove this, but I think a, a person's deepest need is to be chosen. And it all starts in the womb. First, you want to be chosen, right, by your mother, right? So she's choosing you by having birth, by giving you birth. 
And then when you're a baby, she's choosing you again, right? By nurturing you and helping you uh, grow up. And then you move on from that and you want to be chosen by your family, your parents, right? So your father, your mother, right? And then the next evolution of that is you want to be chosen by your friends. And then the next evolution is you want to be chosen by your mate. And then somewhere along there, if you, if you have faith or not, you want to be chosen by your creator. So at any time in those points, when that need that started in your womb to be chosen is not met, wounds can develop. And then for men, I mean, we're just conditioned by society, right? To not cry, ignore pain, ignore feelings, pull yourself up from your bootstraps and move on. That's so wrong. I mean, I get it why they said that, right? Because there were horrible things that have happened throughout, you know, as long as we've been on this earth, right? And you had generations that needed to have that mindset, but that mindset also came with its consequences. And we're now living those consequences out. And we're gonna continue to pass those consequences down unless uh, as men, we take stock and say, all right, the buck stops here with me. I'm gonna deal with my bag of crap so that my son doesn't have to deal with his, so that my daughter doesn't have to deal with hers, right? It isn't just about us. This isn't about Mike King. This isn't about my son or my daughter. This is about legacy, right? This is about my kids' kids, and maybe even further on. And by you doing this work, you you have the power to change your complete family tree. That's fantastic stuff. I, I had never thought about it or made the correlation that we're chosen out of the womb. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes sense what you're saying, but I never really put the that puzzle piece together until you just said that. That was a mind-blowing moment for me. I, I'm just being candid right now, just sharing that. You talk about your kids uh, kind of briefly, but what's one lesson or maybe the greatest lesson you hoped your kids learned from you? What would that be? Wow. Um, I don't know if it's a lesson, but I think as a as a, a dad, especially if you're a dad of faith, you have one job and that's to introduce your kids to God and get out of the way, you know, and I, and I've just tried to do my best to do that. Right. I grew up in a very, I mean, my grandpa raised me half my life. So, you know, they use very strict Baptist, you know, like rules, 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 never really any relationship, you know, and as I've grown older and my faith has matured, uh, I've come to understand that it's actually the opposite, right? In my belief, it's more about relationship. And when you're in a relationship, you don't want to do certain things, right? Like marriage, right? You're free to do it. Is it going to be beneficial to the relationship in the long term? Absolutely not, right? And that's where the the rules kind of come in. So I'm trying to just show my kids what that looks like. And in some aspects, I've succeeded. In some aspects, I've failed, and I've got more work to do. That's fantastic, though. That that I love that line of introduce them to Jesus and then get out of the way. You know, I, I love that. I, again, never even really thought about that. I either even, uh, you know, growing up as a, as a youth kid, you know, grew up in the church, became a youth pastor, never really, never really mm. put that together either. So that's good stuff too. I love that a lot. So Mike, here's my question for you as we wrap up and then we're going to play a game together because, you know, being a basketball right. guy, you got to be <laughs> somewhat competitive, right? I'm thinking we got to, sure. we got to tap into that competitive nature of you, I'm guessing, right? Oh boy. All right. So don't worry. It's, it's not like Carolina's trivia or something like that. I want put, <laughs> okay. put you at ease there, but, and, and you might be able to have a timeout. We might give you one just to be nice, right. just Appreciate to, that. to let you have one. Cause you guys don't apparently have those out there, but, uh, <laughs> but, but if somebody's listening to you right now and they're like, you know what, some of the things that he's walked through are so painful. I have a similar story or, you know, I, I want to know how he was able to forgive his dad for all that bad stuff that he did. I, I don't know the steps that he took and, and maybe we don't have time to get into all of that because we could probably go all day with that stuff, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But if somebody's hearing you right now, and they're really, again, resonating with you and they really want to know more of your story. How can somebody maybe reach out to you and learn more about how you're helping men and and maybe they're a church leader and they're like, man, this guy could, he could come speak to our men's group. He's got some cool stories. And you know, how can somebody reach out to you and get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm on Instagram under Mike, your mentor. Uh, so you can reach out to me there. I know that's what a lot of people like to do, but if you're old school and you just want to email me, my email is Mike at King I'd love to talk to you. Love to help you out however I can point you uh, in the right direction, share some resources that have helped me out along in, in my journey. 
in a hopes that, um, you know, I know they'll help you out, but it's a matter of, you know, if, if you're, if you're ready to use them or not. If you're ready to use them or not. I love that. <laughs> Big if, but going back to your, you know, your story of, of being a Jordan fan and, and, you know, growing up, you know, I mean, again, with a name like Mike, I mean, how could you not want to root for Michael Jordan? I don't know. Like, I want to have a son just to name him Mike. But but do you remember, though, that first time putting on your Jordans? Because I'm guessing you didn't start with the 11s. You probably started with a, a pair a while back. But do you remember the first time you put them on? And did you really honestly think, much like I did, that you were going to jump higher and that you were actually going to fly? Because I've had a number of people tell me that. Oh, yeah. I remember the exact day I was down in my basement. They were the sixes. That's the ones my mom bought me. And I just thought they were so beautiful is not the right word. Awesome. And like, just, I was such an awe that I just put them under my bed and I just pull them out and look at them every now and then I didn't dare put them on. And then finally my mom was like, what's up with those shoes? You, I got you, you know, that cost me a lot of money. You better wear those things. And so uh, one day I busted them out for basketball practice. And yeah, I, I fully expected to be able to, I don't know, slap the net, I think in sixth grade and super fast. And you know, that first day, it really felt like it did. It was like a placebo effect, right? I'm like, I'm unstoppable, you know? <laughs> to me, when you're really walking out your purpose and you're really walking out who you are, that really is something that can can truly take place, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And you know, the crazy thing is, is you and you face those wounds on the other side of that. That's exactly how you feel. It's exactly how you feel. You can finally truly, to quote Jordan, you can finally truly take flight. And be free from that. So, uh, so, all right. So I tried, Amazon didn't come through, but I tried, I really tried hard to find a fab five cup in my stuff. I, I really, sure. I, I, yeah. I, I'm going to have to talk to our shipping department on this, but this is of course is my famous North Carolina cup and inside is a die and we're going to play a game together. So here we go. I'm going to roll. Do you care if I roll okay. on your behalf? No, is that right? right ahead. All right. You I'm trust just going to put some light on here you, a second. All right. Yeah. Put some light on. Cause we want to make sure you can truly see you know what your question is going to be because it's going to be really good i feel like so here we go i'm going to roll on your behalf so here we go rolling for you oh this is this is so good are you oh, this i'm nervous for you on this question so here we go so i'm going to show you this just tell me what number that is if you can see it number two number two what, was that your jersey number by chance we didn't even talk about it, that it was part of it 24 and then 42 in college well you had Stackhouse's number there you go. Closest thing I could get to 23. And yeah. Then 42, I just, you know, it's the opposite of what I had in high school. Yeah. Not a Kobe guy at all, because I think of 24 also as Kobe, but. That's true. But nope, I was diehard Michael Jordan. There you go. All right. So here we go. So here's a great question for you. It's almost like the die knew what we were talking about. It's kind of creepy sometimes how that works. But here's the question. It says, uh, who is touching your life right now? Wow. Who is touching my life right now? Man, that's a great question. You know, um, probably just because it's so recent, I got a great part of like this whole thing of like helping men, right? Answer that call is as men, we need to surround ourselves with good men who really want the best for us with expecting nothing in return. And that's so antithetical to culture right but it's so refreshing so who's touching my life right now are these great group of guys that i have from chicago that were from my men's group back then and i'm still in touch with them we still do stuff even 13 years later and i was just on a zoom call with them last night um and i was telling them how grateful i was for them in in my life so they're they're touching my life right now would you say they're your fab five of guys around you? Maybe. I don't know. Pretty close. Pretty close. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I, I just want to give you one last uh, question. If we could somehow get you to the United Center, right? You're familiar with that place. Did you, did yeah. you first off, did you ever play in the United Center? I'd not played, but I shot a three. You shot a and three. Air ball, and air balled. Not good. <laughs> Not a good day for you shooting-wise, huh? No. Okay. Uh -uh. So according to Google, the United Center's capacity is 23,500 people, roughly, full capacity. Mm -hmm. If I could get you out on that Bulls logo, center court, kind of like the old school promise keepers, you, you probably remember that, mm -hmm. you're, you're old enough yeah. for that. But somehow if we could get you there, men are there, men from the young age of 12 
all the way up to 65, we'll say. What would you say to that crowd of men that were gathered there to hear you speak? What would you say to them in that moment? I would say to them, if you want to reach your potential as a man, as a husband, as a father, and as a friend, it's imperative that you go back and face your wounds. Because without doing that, you'll never be able to step into that greatness you were called to. That's fantastic. Mike, I want to thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I really, Pleasure. really appreciate it, man. It's It's been fun. I hope it's been okay with a little bit of the Michigan jokes and like not too much. No, it's been great, man. All right. I can take it. All right, good. All right. So guys, guys and gals alike, I just want to challenge you. I know this was more of a dude message today. I get that. Ladies, listen, I get that. But I guarantee this, you probably right now have a dude in your life. Maybe that little boy in your life that needs to grow up to be a man. Can I just encourage you in one respect today? Will you put this in their earbuds? Will you give this episode to them and say, listen, will you go listen to this? Here's an ordinary guy. He's not Michael Jordan. He did aspire to be great. And that's the thing is we should all aspire to be great. Not so we can say, look, one, two, three, look at me, but we can aspire to be great, to do greater things for the future generations. I love that Mike said that, by the way. And I'm going to steal a little bit from Gatorade. Don't we want to be like Mike today? Don't we want to challenge men in a great respect to call them to a better life? Just a thought for you. Let me know how you do that. OPSpodcast.com, of course, is a great place to tell me on our connections page. You can drop me a note there, or you can send me a message on Instagram, Facebook, or even Twitter. I'd love to hear from you there too at OPS Podcast Show. And just remember this as we close out today. Remember this. Remember when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned till next week when we walk in other people's shoes.